Hello, church. Thank you for listening to the Gallery Church Podcast. We're in a series based upon the book of Colossians. We are attempting to study this letter to this gathering of people so that we can learn from them and increase in our faith, hope, and love in our city at this time. We hope this is a blessing to you. And if we can help you in any way, please feel free to reach out and let's get back to the podcast. Good morning, everyone. My name is Mary Beth, and I will be reading Amos 8, 1 to 6. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos, he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, when will the new moon be over, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat, skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. This is God's word. Good morning, my name is Summer. My scripture reading comes from uh, Colossians, verse 1, 3 through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard your faith in Christ Jesus and of love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras our dear fellow servant who is faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who has also told us of your love in the spirit. For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We've continually asked God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins the word of the lord Amen. Amen. Thank you Mary Beth. Thank you Summer. Um, how many of you uh, continually read in the book of Amos? Uh, some of you are like, there is a book of the Bible called Amos. Um, it's one of the minor prophets. Uh, so here, here's, here's what I need to, need to share. Last week, I told you that in order for us, according to the, the journey I have us on, like now again, there's ways that we can get there. Uh, we need to look at historical information, and then we need to be able to look at it from a pastoral standpoint. At the end of the service last week, I petitioned you to pray for me so that I could look at this historical document, this letter that Paul wrote from prison to these people in bathed in prayer um, so that they could be encouraged to full maturity and have great Christian instinct. Like he wasn't just happy that they had knowledge. He wanted that knowledge to literally leap out of their physical being on a moment's notice. So in a stimulated conversation in their home, respond like Jesus. In a stimulated conversation at work, respond like Jesus. In a moment of struggle, somebody approaches you on their street, he wants them to be able to respond like Jesus. So there's a historical aspect of this letter. Paul wrote it, wrote it to the people in Colossae. Um, He didn't write it to us. He wrote it to them. So what does that mean for us? It's in the Bible. It's there for us. So we have to do some historical work. What metaphors are in there? What ideas or thoughts were something that they would have picked up on that reading it in English, we may or may not be able to understand it. And so that's a pastoral work. 
I am asking the Lord to show me throughout the week, to take me to trusted resources and people that have also studied this deeply so that I can look at you in 2022, at the end of a pandemic, in a time when people don't trust leaders at all, and saying to you, I want us through the power of the Holy Spirit to find where is the truth for you and I in this day and in this time when all of us have desires for theology. All of us want certain theological opinions to, to be true. We want what we think about God to be true. And we want what the Bible says to us to be true. But there's other parts of our life that we're just like, but I don't know where God stands on this. And this is my heart's desire. And so I have to work with us and walk with us and be patient with us to say, what does it look like for Jesus to be Lord of our lives today? And so there's a heavy load for us to take a book like the letter to the Colossians church and to be able to say Jesus was Lord to them and Jesus is Lord to us. And if he's Lord, what does that then mean? And so we were been talking a lot of like how, like the title and the, the, um, the aspect of uh, the series is when and how do we get a chance to undermine the powers and authorities around us? Like to what do we get to say yes to? What do we get to say no to? And here's even more important. To whom do we get to say yes and to whom do we get to say no? I know growing up, and my mom will appreciate that, I hardly ever had the opportunity to look my mom in the face and say no. That generally was not the best way to talk to my mom. Generally, if I did not agree with her, there was a more diplomatic way for me to approach her, saying, Mom, I know you want me to do this now, but can I offer a exchange? Like, I didn't learn that very easily. Um, and so there were moments that my mom and I had great in exchanges in the kitchen um, together. Uh, but here's the thing. If, if, if God is gracious and patient and kind, does it even matter what we believe? So this is what people ask me all the time. It's like, does it even matter what I say yes and no to if God's going to be merciful and just and kind in the end? Like, what does it really do for me to understand what the Bible has to say? Because God is love. And so he is, he's given me the freedom to do whatever I want to with my life. And so let me just do that. And so how do we come to some conclusions to know that if Jesus is Lord, that means his way is higher than my way. And when I want to do something that's different from his way, what's the ramifications? And so that's not an easy conversation. And so that's why for me, taking time for us through this series to have what I would call a really good hearing. Like, let's literally talk about this. Let me present some things. Let's talk about it together. And so that you and I can come to a very strong understanding because Paul, I believe, is drawing from his rich history of being a Pharisee, which that means he would have been an expert in everything Moses had written. That means the first five books of the Bible, very likely Paul would have had memorized. Memorized. Just go back. Hopefully there's a few chapters he got some grace on, right? When it's like so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so in the house of so-and-so, right? Like, could he get a little bit, like, he had those lineages in mind. He understood the history and the time frame. He had an understanding of the purpose of Israel that you and I don't. And so in this particular passage, coming back to Colossians chapter 1 again, and can I just give you a little foreshadowing? We're going to have the same New Testament reading again next week because I wasn't able to cover everything this Sunday that I wanted to. And so I'm just focused on the Old Testament. And next week, we're going to look at a gospel and then summarize all that together. So it's an epic journey that we're going to be on. Hopefully, um, we can stay together. But the first week, I talked about this. I talked about a rabbinic teaching practice called a targum. Do you guys remember? Some of you were here. So like, yeah, that's a word that many of us... So let me summarize what that is. That was a way in which a, is a, a, a Levite, which was the keeper of the temple, a, a, a rabbi in the Jewish faith, 
could take a text written in Hebrew to a person that doesn't speak Hebrew, whether Jewish or Gentile, that was interested in Jehovah. Like they could take a text that somebody didn't understand and not just give it to them in the original language. They were able to summarize it for them and give it to them in a language they could understand. And why was this important? Well, it's important because the journey we're going to be on today, I'm going to prove to you that Israel was in exile a lot. What does that mean? It means nations came and took them away from their land. And they were gone from their land for generations. Nehemiah is one of the great examples of that. Nehemiah actually comes back to rebuild the temple, and he has a great love for Jerusalem, but he never laid foot in Jerusalem prior. His dad never laid foot in Jerusalem prior. It was his grandparents and great-grandparents that knew about Jerusalem, and they had been talking about it. As the psalmist says in Psalms 145, verse 4, let each generation tell its children of your mighty acts and let them proclaim your power. And so there's these places where the nation of Israel had been forced into exile. And a lot of times those people never got to come back when the exile period was over. So Jewish people are all over the globe, the known world at this point in time. And many of them are multiple generations in to living in a foreign land. So they don't even speak the language anymore. But yet the truth about God through the people of Israel hadn't changed. And they needed to know what God was talking to them about, what his purpose and expectation for them was about. And so today is my attempt to help us understand some of the Old Testament stuff that's coming forward in here, because I believe that when Paul in verse 6 says the same good news, which is where we get the word gospel, which is the same word out of the Roman world where it's like an evangeline, not evangeline, an evangelical. It's this word that, that, that has this implication that a, a pronouncement of victory has been announced. So it was a Roman way for Caesar to send out a gospel, an announcement of good news that a battle had been won and that a purpose for the kingdom had been declared. And so Paul is using language familiar to Rome to announce a good news about, listen to this, going out all over the world and bearing fruit. Why would he choose to use bearing fruit language? Why would that be the metaphor that Paul turns to when he's talking about the good news being that Christ died, Christ rose, and Christ is coming back again. And so today, what I'm hoping is to help you begin to see that I think Paul is talking to a bunch of people about something that they would have historically known more about than maybe you and I might be able to connect in just the ways that we process. So all of us have our way of talking about Jesus. Can I just say that? Like all of you have a story Some of you um, love to talk about things in the Bible and connecting it to people. Others of you, almost like Paul, you had your own Damascus Road experience. So you had a moment where you felt like you encountered Jesus. And in that encounter with Jesus, it changed your life. And so you have a way of talking to people about the way you experienced Jesus and, and and it coming forth out of you. Many of us have a way of trying to define for others what salvation means to us and how that impacts the people in and around us. And Paul had his conversion experience, but Paul also had a way that he talked about the entire love of God's story throughout all of humanity. And it's through the people of Israel. We're not going to have time to do this now. But if you do covenant with us as a covenant family, we're going to spend some time as a covenant family in the book of Romans together this year. And in the book of Romans, you can start reading in like chapter 8 and go through chapter 11 and find this epic story of how God was in the people of Israel and how he was using them through generations and how 
his still hope was that many of them would still believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but he had, a, but he had never given up on them. It's a powerful narrative that has deep meaning for us, has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to teach you today. So I, you have to be a part of the covenant family to get that Romans teaching. So um, hearing and understanding. One of the tools that we're going to teach in how to study the Bible is how do we hear the New Testament with Old Testament ears? You and I have got to understand that there's so many references to the Old Testament in the New Testament. And a lot of those references are one word or two words or maybe a, ver a half a verse where they, Paul or a writer will pull something out of the Old Testament wanting to connect that entire narrative into that New Testament context, but they do it through just pulling in some words. So you and I have to learn to hear the New Testament with Old Testament ears. And so the very arc of Scripture, you understand what I mean by the arc of Scripture? So there's the, 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 the creation through Israel's story to the coming of Jesus, to Jesus ascending, and then the story of the church all the way up to us. There's an arc of Scripture. Um, and that Scripture is, roots Israel's story deep in the context of one empire after another with a few breaks in between. So pick your empire period. There was times where Egypt was the oppressive empire, Persia, Babylon, Assyrians. There's all these different periods throughout Israel's story. And then Rome obviously is in the context of much of our New Testament, these oppressive empires. So from Genesis chapter one, which Genesis chapter one and two was actually written during one of those ba the Babylonian time periods. So that's like way into Israel's story. We start to get the Genesis story that was coming to them. And, and Moses and other writers are coming into this through the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to present to us this story of how God started everything and how God came to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and how Joseph ended up getting elevated in, in, in Egypt during a famine, and then they were forgotten, oppressed, and now their children are being killed. Like, this is a massive story through Genesis that then gets us into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Moses' love letter to Israel in Deuteronomy. Like, there's so much of an arc of Scripture that we need to cover. But Israel finds its most ancient roots as a nation in the context of slavery. If you and I think of Israel and we don't think of how many years they spent in slavery, you and I are doing them injustice, even post-resurrection. Like there's been so many moments where these people that... God picked to do something special have been through some incredibly awful things. Awful. And we've seen it in our nation's history and we've seen it in other nations' history. And so the, the children of Israel even find God in a special way in the nation of Egypt, one of the mega, mega empires. And Israel's God hears them in the midst of that slavery, in the midst of an empire that had ground them down, like literally had taken away nearly all of their humanity, oppressed them with an incredible workload and sought to make their work even harder. And in the midst of that, God is calling out to them. But not only does God deliver them from that nation, God defeated the nation we can hear a song about that in Exodus chapter 15. And here's one line out of Exodus chapter 15. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. So the, the people of Israel had an epic story of freedom from slavery, but not only was that freedom from slavery something that was provided for them, God destroyed the empire that was oppressing I think that's important for us to understand. And so another background to the people of Israel that we find in the Genesis story, in the Exodus story, in the letters in Deuteronomy, is that the people of Israel had two very important pillar beliefs, and that is a monotheism and an election. These are two very important foundational beliefs to the nation of Israel that Paul 
I believe, is bringing into the story in the letter of Colossians. In the face of the gods of Babylon, in the face of the gods of Egypt, in the face of the gods of the Persians, the Romes, all of those empires, the people in bondage was Israel and other nations with them in bondage. And they held the belief that there was only one God that was ruler of heaven and earth. That narrative for them was that God the Father, Jehovah, Jireh, the God of all, was the one that was the only true God. All of these other little G-gods were false gods, and Israel had a proclamation that their God was the one and only God. And that God picked them, chose them, elected them out of Egypt, rescued them to be a special nation, right before that nation was going to kill off all their children. These were foundational understandings to who the people of Israel were. And they would have been foundational understandings to who Paul was. And you can read a lot about that in Exodus chapter 9. God had called these people from Israel, the Israelite people, to be a blessing to other nations, to be a light to other nations. God specifically plucked them out of Egypt for the purpose of being a blessing. In our gallery language, if you've been through essentials, we don't talk about just being a light. We talk about being a display of God's greatness here in Baltimore and to the world. That's our language to the people of Israel. It was that our seed was going to be an forever benefit to the other nations around them. Blessings would be poured out to the other nations around them. And it's on these two pillars that I believe that the whole biblical narrative rests. And if you were to take time to go through the book of Romans, you'll see how Paul hangs a lot of these thoughts about one God being God over everything and there being a special people called out to be his representatives in the world and that hadn't changed. And so as the story unfolds, concerns of empire are never far from Israel's consciousness. I want you to hear this. In Israel's story, they were constantly aware. On Mount Sinai, they are in the wilderness. And I believe the majority of us believe that God only gave them 10 commandments on Mount Sinai. And that is not the truth. God gave Moses 40 days worth of materials. I want that to rest on us just for a minute. We are selling God's word to this elect group of people short if we think that the only thing that they had were 10 things that they had to follow. You can't go through the letter to the, that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy and not begin to see that they had laws of how they were to care for foreigners. They had laws of how they were to care for orphans and widows, the poor, how they were to use the land and not be oppressive. I just saw a report on the news yesterday of all of this illegal mining in the Amazon where they're trying to get gold out of the sediment and they're destroying acres upon acres upon acres of rainforest. Laws about gleaning the land were given to the nation of Israel. Laws for building the charging of interest. They were given laws about the collateral pledges and, and withholding wages overnight. They were like, if somebody worked for you, you pay them that day because their family's dependent upon it. They had laws regarding it, laws for seeing that one's kin did not fall into slavery. I've had so many moments here in the city where I've seen families that didn't care about one another, where children have hurt a parent or a grandparent, and so that family's like, whatever befalls you, you just need, like, you can be a slave to the streets, you can be without homes, you can fall into drug, you can be a slave to drug, and families don't care about people. But yet, the nation of Israel were given specific laws about how to protect their family from falling into slavery. They were also given laws of redemption for slaves and for land, Laws that, that, that were basically a way if somebody has found themselves as a slave, there is a pathway for them to have dignity and to have what they need and for their families to be a blessing. All of these things were given. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. They were given so much more. And all of these things were counter to all of the empires that enslaved Israel. I think I want, I want you to hear that. So from one nation to the next, a little bit of a break in between. One nation to the next, a little bit of a break in between. And while the oppressive empires, pick the one that you want to focus on. 
is preoccupied with images that represent their own power and their own dominion. Just think about it. All of the oppressive groups over Israel were all about the sustainment of their empire. Egypt wanted Israel to build their temples, to build their buildings, to farm their land, and were not given anything to take care of themselves, but were just to benefit the empire. That is what happened in all of them. And Israel was called to be a counter-empire to all the other empires in the world. They, as a people, were given laws to set them up to be different from all the other nations of the world. The other empires were looking for ways to improve production management and ways to consume beyond their wildest imagination. But Israel as a nation was called to be a Sabbath-keeping nation. There was one day a week they weren't to work. There was one year every seven they weren't to work their land. They were asked by God in the seventh times seventh, so the 50th year, for everything to be a jubilee. Everybody is set free. All the land goes back to the original. All debts are canceled. Like they had a call to be a nation that was different from every other nation that walked the face of the earth. And it was supposed to be good news a light, a testimony of the one true God through an elect group of people to be the testimony to the world of who that God was. They were to be that display of this epic greatness of God. And when Israel enters the promised land after the Egypt, now listen, when Israel entered the promised land, it faced its greatest challenge not to become like the empire it left behind. It wasn't in the time of slavery that they faced one of their greatest challenges. It was in their time of living in a gift that they faced their biggest and one of the most difficult challenges that they had to face. That story for them was that after they got into that land and they lived in houses they didn't build, they harvested food from crops they didn't plant, they started to take on a desire to become their own empire. They turned to God and said, we want a king like all the other nations. Could you imagine? They had been through what all the other nations had. And they're now in a gift. And the land of the gift, they want to put a person in charge that will do nothing but take. I, I want that to hit you. They're in the promised land, the land of gift. And they want a king that is only going to take, 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 take. But they have a God who's been fighting the battles for them and has been providing for them. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 5 through 18, you can see that God told Samuel that if they have a king, he's going to take their sons for soldiers. He's going to take their daughters for royal servants. He's going to keep the harem well stocked. And he will take their wealth for his own personal treasury and he will take their produce for his imperial household. So God is saying to them, before they even get their first king, let me tell you what this king's gonna do for you. And they still said, we want a king like all the other nations. And so I, I, want, I wanna bring this and keep you tied in because this has a huge impact to the letter in Colossae because Rome was an empire that had its way of saying, we have good news and we bring peace. But the good news was a lie and the peace was a lie. And Paul is pulling from the history that he understood to begin to tell them where grace comes from, where peace comes from, and where that source is. And so when Israel asked for a king like the other nations, they were asking to be enslaved again. And, I, and, and many of us are like, why would they do that? And here's the pastoral response. Why are we doing that? How many ways have we sold out to thoughts and ways and practices in our generation that have nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven? So under a king, Israel was going to mimic the controlling empires. So you can look at 1 Samuel 8, you can look at Exodus chapter 2, and you're going to begin to see that the controlling empire nations wanted its people 
to become a nation that enslaved people that were all about building up the power for just a few and not for the many. And so as Israel's story unfolds through the promised land, as they get their first king, we begin to see this tension between the monarchy, this king and God and the temple. And you begin to see where some of the people we celebrated, like David rapes Bathsheba like a king in a foreign land would do. Tamar is raped. Solomon uses slave labor to force people to build the temple and a palace. Solomon even was told specifically by his father, David, by the hand of God himself, do not amass horses and chariots from Egypt. And what did Solomon go and do? He amassed horses and chariots for Egypt. And can I just give you a bronze era equivalent to what he was asked not to do? He was asked not to amass tanks. Horses and chariots in that first century were the battlefield weaponry of that generation. And God's like, I want to fight your battles for you. But Solomon didn't feel comfortable with God fighting the battles. So in order to get what he wanted, he used slaves. He bought horses and chariots. And so Jezebel frames Naboth in a powerful story in Kings because she wanted the land. So in order for people in the empire to have what they want, they frame people so that they can lay claim. I I was recently reading a story of an African-American family in near LA that had a beautiful beach resort back during our civil rights movement. And the city um, did that thing where they're eminent domain. And they're like, oh, we have a purpose for your property and we're taking it from you. And you know that the land sat for like 25 years and they never did anything with it. They just took it from a family. And so there's places in Israel's story where they were doing the same thing that empires do. Taking, 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 taking. And so I had Lana build some slides and you will not be able to write all this down, but I am going to make a commitment to you that she's going to rotate some of them through. So if you want to do some research today, take some pictures, you can, because some of you are going to be like, I don't know if I trust you. So I want to prove my point to you. So it's going to go in the app. Um, later today. And so it'll be in the notes section of the app under week three of subverting. But here's the deal. This is what the prophets accused Israel of doing. In Isaiah 1, 23 and 10, 2, Jeremiah 5, Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 20, Zechariah 7, Malachi chapter 3. The covenant people do not care for aliens, widows and orphans or the weak and the injured. This is what the prophets accuse Israel of. Why would they accuse them of doing something that they weren't told not to do? So Moses came down with more than just 10 simple commandments. He came down with a description of being a counter group of people that was supposed to be functioning in the world. Um, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 22, Hosea 12, Amos 5, Amos 6 that we read today, Micah 6. they, They were failing to practice mercy and justice. Did you pick up in Amos? They were wanting to cut the Sabbath short so they could get back to selling goods illegally. That's what Amos 6 is about. Did you hear that? They were wanting to say, how do we take from the Sabbath and get back to our evil business practices where we include the extra scraps of wheat in the weight of the wheat so that we are getting more money and they're getting less for their expenses. We've tipped the scales. We've made the weights off. Like there's so much language of the way that they had become an oppressive people and God was calling them out for it. And why would God call them out for it if he never told them how he wanted them to live? How were they supposed to be different? And Israel grinds down the poor and the needy like Egypt did. You can read that in Isaiah 3, Isaiah 10, Isaiah 32, Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 22, Amos 2, Amos 4, Amos 5, Amos 8, and let's get Amos. Job 24, we could even look at a vision for that. Psalms 37, Psalms 109. If you don't believe me, I'm telling you, Paul knew this. Paul knew these facts knew what God had called them to. They had consumptive practices, Isaiah chapter 2 and 58, where they were literally putting the weight on people so that they could have excess. 
They engaged in business deals that exploited the poor, Amos 8, 5 through 6. So there's so many places where I want to encourage you to go and look and look at the stories, look at the things they were asked to do. Um, But the exile was God's answer. If you were a part of our Peacemaker series that we did well over a year and a half ago, you heard me say that God is patient to a point. God can only allow things to stack up for so long before he says enough. You and I don't have the bandwidth mentally. We don't have the authority in our humanity to question his patience. We don't have the the ability to say, why aren't you acting now? There are examples in the Psalms and in the lament of lamentations and in places where you can find that people's prayer was, how long, O Lord? But yet their posture of their heart was, but we know you're going to act in your time. But here's the deal, church, and I think this is what Paul is carrying to the church in Colossae. God is going to act. And God is concerned about the way we act. And and Luke even labeled his letter to Theophilus, the book of Acts, because what we do in this world matters. And so what we're finding is, is that God's answer to us or to Israel going against the way he wanted them to be as a nation was exile. But in exile, they didn't get a pass from God's intent. They were still supposed to be his people in exile. So I want you to hear me. This is, this is the part that I think many of us still struggle today. And here's me trying to get a little pastoral in the midst of a lot of historical. Many of us want God to change our exterior circumstances as proof of how much he loves us. But what God is wanting to do, he's wanting to change you on the inside so that you can live in your circumstances looking like him. All right, I want you guys to hear me when I say this. We can see it in the people of Israel. They did not get a pass on being God's elect in the world because they were no longer in their promised land. Jeremiah 29, verses five through seven. Listen to this, it's gonna be on the screen for you. Jeremiah says to them, build homes and plan to stay. Can we just stop there just for a minute? Some of you that have been around a while, you know my heart is, we say goodbye to too many people too often. This is a word for all of you, all right? Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply with an exclamation point. Do not dwindle away and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for for it, for the city. For its welfare will determine your welfare. So even in the midst of being in exile, God is asking them to live in the intent, the counterculture that he had intended for them to be when they were in their own promised place. In the face of an empire that would deny them humanity, the prophet said to them, do these things that God called you to in the beginning of your story. These things are linked to the bearing of the image of God that is in you and in your captors. Plant gardens, eat good food, produce that good food, be fruitful and multiply. Even in exile, God has called them to fulfill the creational demand, the creational mandate. You're like, what is the creation mandate? Genesis 1, 28 and 29. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground, except for snakes. And then God said, look, I have given you every seed bearing plant throughout the earth and all the fruit trees for your food. That was the creation mandate. That came to them during a period where they were in exile in the timeline of when these letters were written. This came to them in a time where God is reminding them that no matter what your life circumstances are, your purpose in this world hasn't changed. And it's ironic, I believe, 
that the whole reason these people are in this situation is that they were, they were not able to fulfill their calling when they had all the cards stacked for them in the promised land. They had moments, but as a people, generationally, they got off course, and then they were forced into exile. And we need to begin to learn for that. So two quick points from Jeremiah that I think are pastoral. In the hopelessness of bondage, Jeremiah is calling the people to live lives of hopeful obedience and fruit-bearing lives. Some of you feel like Baltimore right now is an exilic period for your life. You are like, there is no way the light of God can be seen here. He can be seen through us. He wants us to be here. Jeremiah goes on to say he doesn't stop with this. He extends this call outward. And in the midst of an oppressive empire in slavery, his exile mission is is to seek the welfare of the city. This is the way that you and I get approved subversion. You and I can say no to wrong and yes to right if you and I are following our purpose, which is to seek the welfare of the people around us. Right in line with Matthew 5.44, where Jesus tells us in this wonderful sermon, pray for those who persecute you. I believe that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a targum. Jesus is saying, let me tell you the arc of Scripture in a way that you can simply understand it. This is the way that you, as image bearers of me, should have been living your entire time, but now I'm going to make sure that it's hyper clear for you now. You don't need to be freed from your circumstances. You need to love like I love in your circumstances and let the change come from that. The focus and the purpose of life. God is determined for his people to live in their calling. God has not changed that. God was determined for Israel to live in their calling for the benefit of other nations. Paul is pulling from that language, saying to the church in Colossae, God is intent on you living your calling. And he wants you to live that calling and not be distracted by the things of the world. You need to be the light of the world. You need to be fruitful. You need to multiply. And then Paul says to them, I hear that you're doing it. Silence to gratitude. Somehow in prison, Paul was letting the silence of that moment reflect upon the story of the people in Colossae. He writes them a letter because it was the only thing he could do for them other than pray. And he encourages them for the way that they're being fruitful and the way that their testimony is changing things around them. In peace or under oppression, either or, whether we're in a time of peace or we're in a time of oppression, God's plan for you and I doesn't change. It doesn't change. You and I are subject to our Lord, Jesus Christ. His will, his way, is what he wants us to do no matter where we are, whether we're full or that we're hungry, but he doesn't want you to be full because you're taking from other people. One empire after another, brief periods of independence serve only to help them to remember They had one true God, and they had one special calling. So underneath of that arc, I believe we can return back to verse 6. This same good news that came to you is going out over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood truth about God's wonderful grace. Hearing and understanding. That is my desire for us as we go through these weeks upon weeks, is we need to hear and we need to understand. Historically, Israel had one God and one calling. Pastorally, we have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. And that is a one God only calling on our life. We can't have other gods. Jesus, in the Gospels we're going to talk about next week, warned us that, oh, our gods might not be all these great names like Aphrodite and all these other things that they had. Your God is money. Your God is power. Your God is being known. or all, your, your God is your religious acts. Like he, he, he throws out some pretty heavy ones, but he's saying to them, you have one God, and I am the physical representation of him. The bearing fruit metaphor is for us today. Where are you and I in promised land moments? Some of you right now, you are in a promised land. You have a killer job, killer home, 
everything's going well in your favor. There's pretty much nothing in this world that you have to deny yourself from. You're in a promised land. Warning, your greatest temptation period is on you right now. If you are in the most prosperous season of your life, take warning. There is a Old Testament laced with stories of people that were in their most blessed time but turned into the most awful people in numbers. Some of you in here right now are in an exile period. I don't care how bad your life is right now. It doesn't change your purpose. Your purpose is to look like Jesus. Can I tell you this? We're going to look at it next week. Jesus had some really bad moments and it didn't change his mission. I think God wants us to have a red carpet rolled out in front of us and I have a hope that one day it's all going to go easy. The church in Colossae hadn't had that red carpet rolled out for them yet. Their life was hard, but the message was still true. So who's oppressed here right now? Who is the oppressor sitting in the room? We're both in here because of the grace and the peace that comes through Jesus Christ. In him, we can have all that we need, all that we are, everything. He can level the field. We can be the people, the counterculture that he wants us to be. God has always been interested in the work in you more than the work around you. And let me, let me rephrase that. <laughs> he wants to change you before he changes your circumstances because it's in the act of changing you and the light of Christ coming from you that he's gonna get the glory, that he's the one working the change and people are gonna be like, why are you so different? Well, I have the one Lord. All right, I need to end here. Next week, I'm gonna spend a little bit more time in the Gospels. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Why in Colossians chapter four would Paul say to the church, here comes a greeting from the good Dr. Luke. This is the same Luke that wrote Luke's gospel and the letter we know as Acts. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more next week. So here, let me come back to a few other things for you. I'm going to also include an extras um, section in the notes. There's going to be a lot of cross-references. So in the cross-references, I'm going to list out of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy several places where the laws for how they were to live about caring for the people, gleaning, interest, collateral, all that, and give you even more text than I gave you just a few moments ago. But here's the practical challenge for today. And while I'm giving this, let me have the worship team come back up. We're getting ready to sing a song to transition us into the Lord's table. But here's, here's the challenge. Notice the fruit in your life. Okay, don't look at them. Look at me. Don't lose sight. Stay right here. They're beautiful people, all right? I get it. You've been looking at me long enough. You're like, your eyes need a refreshing, all right? But notice the fruit in your life. That's your challenge this week. What fruit is in your life? Please don't just let me say this to you now. Would you please go home and write it on your mirror Write it somewhere, put it on your refrigerator to just say, notice the fruit in your life this week. Are you oppressing or are you being a generous person? Are you excelling in kindness and love and hope or are you anger and angry and bitter and um, judgmental? Like where are, where, what fruit is coming? Are you being fruitful and are you working for the good of the image of Jesus Christ in you? And here's my closing invitation. I know some of you have not yet put your trust in Jesus. And can I just tell you this? He's never going to fail you. He's never going to fail you. He loves you. He's gracious. He's kind. He's, he's the one that you're desiring to be loved from. And, and we want to introduce you to him. We want to give you a space right now to just say, I believe in that Jesus. I believe that he loves me. I believe that he loves us. I believe he has a special calling for us. And I want freedom from whatever is keeping me from it. So I confess Jesus is Lord. I confess that I need him in my life. And I believe you need to do that if you've never done that. And you can do that by just simply pausing and praying, Lord Jesus, I need you. There's no magical words. It's just a powerful confession of truth that he loves you so much.
And so I encourage you to do that. And if you've done that, I want you to come and let us know. So right now we're going to go back to an old way of doing the Lord's Supper together. So I've asked the worship team to do a song. And some of you are like, what does old way mean when I've, this is my first time being here? So some of you that have done this before, I'm going to ask that you lead out. So as soon as the song starts, I'm going to ask for some of you, and I'm going to call you out if you don't mind. But if, you know, Mark and Abby and Brian and Lauren and Yu Chung, Ellen, if you guys wouldn't mind setting a standard where as soon as the music starts, two, three, five, seven of you go and you get the Lord's elements together and you go through it together. We're not going to stop and do it all at one time. We're going to put the onus on you to be faithful in the Lord's table. So you'll come to the table, you'll open the wafer, you'll hold it up to each other, the script's on the table for you, and you can just look at one another and say, this is body broken for you. And everybody says it. Then you take the cup, the juice, and you look at each other, and you say, this is his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And you take it, then you go back to your seat. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. You say to one another, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again so that we can hear you over the song. And then... As soon as it's like, just nobody goes to the table by yourself. And if you go to this table by yourself, wait till somebody joins you. Okay. All right. And if you've gone once and you see somebody standing there, you can go twice. All right. Just don't leave anybody at the table alone. All right. So Lord, I pray that for those that are confessing Jesus as Lord for the first time, that they would have the confidence and the, the joy of your spirit in them so much that they know that, that they are with you so much so they want to tell us. And Lord, I also pray that you would be with those of us right now that um, really need to inspect the fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to see the fruit. And as we come to the table together right now through this song, Father, I pray that as we reflect on the body being broken and the blood being poured out for us and for us together, Father, I pray that we live our lives in obedience to Jesus Christ, our Lord realizing that the example he set is the example we're going to set because we're going to let you do a work in us that's going to be good for other people around us. Father, help us to be a countercultural people. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Gallery Church podcast. I want you to take the message you just received and allow it to go deeply into your mind and heart. Let Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, do the deep work that only he can do. I want to say thank you to everyone who gives to the church. Your gifts make this podcast and ministry possible here in Baltimore and other parts of the world. You can be a part of our work by going to gallerychurchbaltimore.com give or by downloading the church app from the app store. You can also subscribe and share these podcasts with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening or watching and may God's grace and peace be with you.